You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. By definition, history is the study of the past through the written word. Now, modern historians will try to paint a more complete picture using a wide variety of disciplines. Archaeology is a big one, obviously, and these days climate scientists and geologists are almost as important to the study of history as historians themselves. They take a scientific approach to the past. You've got architects and artists, or, you know, architectural and art historians, but they can tell us amazing things about who a people were just by studying their art and architecture. But at the root, history, the discipline, the study of history, is a study of the written words of the past. And the problem there is obvious. You know, if 2,000 years in the future, some aliens interested in Earth history stumbled upon Mein Kampf, they might just read it and say, you know, wow, these Jews sound just horrible. Hope they didn't get that Hitler guy. The written word can be a lie. There's no reason for what is written down to be true. And, I mean, I'm not breaking any new ground here or offering any insights that you haven't probably heard before. I mean, take that famous quote from Napoleon Bonaparte. History is a set of lies agreed upon. And that's an excellent example of what I'm talking about here. First of all, because the sentiment in it is true, but also because that's not a Napoleon quote. He said that, but he was incorrectly quoting Voltaire. And that quote, history is a set of lies agreed upon, should rightly be ascribed to Ralph Waldo Emerson because he was quoting Napoleon, who was incorrectly quoting someone else, but Emerson was doing so in English. And all three of those people were, knowingly or unknowingly, summarizing a different French writer who was talking very specifically about the Greek myths. I've heard the study of pirates and piracy called piratology, which is, in my opinion, a bit grandiose. The suffix ology, as in biology, means, by definition, a scientific discipline, and piratology is anything but an exact science. Now, that's not to say that there hasn't been excellent scientific work done in relation to pirates. 
We owe a lot to the maritime archaeologists out there helping us discover the fates of many pirates about whom we formerly knew a lot less. But the study of piracy is still mired in that kind of old-fashioned reports, partly because the records of a lot of pirates are actually pretty good. You know, most governors in the West Indies would make a note of it when a famous pirate ship was menacing their waters, or they would probably write to a fellow governor to warn them of an approaching threat. It helps us build a day-by-day map of where the pirates were. However, the pirates themselves rarely wrote anything down about their adventures, so we don't know very much about the day-to-day mundanity. And that's why the very few first-hand accounts we have are so precious, but as for the motivations of the pirates for their innermost feelings, well, pirates aren't known for their eloquent pens. And so we run into the problem at hand here. The lies of history, the set of lies agreed upon which make up history. People like pirates, or at least they like pirate stories, but In their stories, people want motivations for their characters. They want to understand and empathize with the characters. That's what makes a story interesting. It's it's also what makes the very best villains. And for a very long time, the people who wrote about pirate history attempted to give that to their readers. They would ascribe motivations to them. The pirates would either be cannibalistic Satanists or democratic freedom fighters. They could be religious rebels, or communists, or capitalists, or just drunken anarchists. And that last one resonates with me. It has the ring of truth in it. Some pirates were some of those things. Other pirates were others of those things. But on some level, they were all drunken anarchists. Okay, well, there was at least one pirate who was famously sober and demanded it of their men as well, but most of them were drunken anarchists. Maybe not in a modern political theory sense, but they were deeply interested in not the overthrow of the state. I mean, good luck with that when you're dealing with the British Empire, but escape from the state. More than anything else, the one thing that ties tales of pirates together is their lust for freedom. And that story, I couldn't say it begins here. Many of the pirates we've discussed before today had that very same dream, that dream of freedom. But today that element becomes central to our story. This is episode 111, Man on a Misown. The golden age of piracy is often said to begin in the Indian Ocean. The privateers of the West Indies, the buccaneers, they weren't real pirates, some writers would argue. No. I would argue against that, just ask the multitudes that were hanged for piracy during the buccaneering era, but so many of those writers chose this period and these pirates for a number of reasons. One might say it's because these pirates were the first who all shared that lust for freedom that we associate so closely with the pirates, and they did share that lust for freedom, but I would argue that in that desire they were not so far removed from the buccaneers. The buccaneers had their own attempted pirate havens. They raged against brutal captains and authoritarian governors. So why do we see these pirates, these Indian Ocean pirates, so differently? To understand that, I think, we have to examine the source. 
Today we enter into an era that was covered by Captain Charles Johnson in his book, A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates. When you're talking about pirates, that book is the source. It's the fount from which nearly all pirate myth and a good deal of early pirate history was born. And one day we'll do a proper episode about the historiography of that book itself, but for now we need to know one thing. That book is filled with lies. We might call them fictions if we were being generous, but history wasn't an academic discipline in 1720 when that book was written. History was a publishing concern, and the goal of any good history was to sell books. And that book did its job very well. The authorship of that work is still disputed, and we've touched on that before. The author's given name was Captain Charles Johnson, and most modern prints carry that name. It was, for many years, assumed to be Daniel Defoe, but that's probably not the case. Whoever the author was, they wrote with a purpose in mind. Selling books, certainly, but also something deeper, something thematic, something philosophical. The author had certain views on religion, on the state, and on freedom, views that he or she may actually have held or maybe just attributed to the pirates to sell books. Either way, though, a general history of the pirates is filled with these views. They define pirates and piracy to this day. Nowhere in a general history are they more obvious than in the story about the subject of today's episode, which is a set of lies, a set of audacious lies, but these lies are certainly not agreed upon. These lies are told in the story of Captain James Misson. Misson appears in the second volume of A General History of the Pirates, a volume that came out two years after the first, a volume that focuses on what were called the Red Sea Men. And this second volume may have been written by another author entirely. The style and some of the content suggest it. It might be compared to one of those knockoff bargain bin movies, you know, like Transmorphers. But it's attributed to the same author, Captain Johnson, and since we don't know who that is, we can't say for certain. Captain Misson opens that second volume. His story is the first in it, and immediately that book and that story begins spinning lies. And the very first lie is probably the existence of Captain Misson at all. According to the author, we know the story about which we will talk about today due to a French manuscript in which Misson detailed his life. But we don't have that manuscript. Except for a general history, there isn't any evidence of that manuscript's existence. But we're still going to tell the story, because it's key to understanding our understanding of pirates. Misson, according to that manuscript, was born in Provence in southern France. Now you might recall from our discussions about the Barbary pirates that Provence was a hub of anti-pirate activity on the Mediterranean. Now, Misson's father's name is not given, but... His father is described as a master of considerable fortune, which naturally makes the mind wonder. Perhaps this is a young nobleman. The young man, Misson, was educated well. He passed his humanities and logic and was a passable mathematician. Initially, he was bound for the musketeers, but the author tells us that he had a 
roving spirit and a fascination for books about travel. Instead of joining the musketeers, the young Masson went to sea. Masson served aboard the ship Victory, commanded by one of his relations. From their port of call in Marseille, Victory cruised to every European port on the Mediterranean. All the while, over these cruises, young Misson devoured all knowledge he could learn about ships and how to sail them. Captain Johnson writes, quote, He grew fond of this life and was resolved to be a complete sailor, which made him always one of the first on a yardarm and inquisitive in the different methods of working a ship. His discourse was turned on no other subject, and he would often get the boatswain and the carpenter to teach him in their cabins the constituent parts of a ship's hull, and how to rig her. Though he spent a great part of his time with these two officers, he behaved himself with such prudence that they never attempted at familiarity, and always paid the respect due his family. End quote. The respect due his family hmm, must be someone important. And I imagine that at this point the author intended the young women who were reading to be swooning at this presumably handsome and gallant young nobleman with a taste for adventure. But while victory was anchored in Naples, Masson received permission to travel to Rome to see the great city. Then we are treated to a tirade on the evils of Catholicism. Remember, this was an English book intended for English audiences. But Masson meets another young man an Italian who had taken his vows as a priest, Signor Caraccioli. But Caraccioli had grown disillusioned with Holy Mother Church. He told Mission that, quote, religion was no more than a curb upon the minds of the weaker, which the wiser sort yielded to in appearance only, end quote. And then he starts to get cynical. Caraccioli's only purpose in joining the church was personal advancement, his financial and influential advancement, as it was for all of his fellow priests, he said. And Caraccioli admits that, well, the fellowship, the brotherhood of the priesthood was nice as well. He disparages what he calls the monarchy of St. Peter. Now this story was told about the 1690s, but it was written in the 1720s. At that time, there was a certain group within English society in which the monarchy was in disfavor. Not with everyone, but maybe with Captain Johnson. But this was, in the story, a Frenchman talking to an Italian. Everyone here was good Catholics, except that neither of them were. Misson invited Signor Caraccioli aboard his ship Victory. He would get that fellowship that he craved, and he would also get a very real chance for money and power. So Caraccioli agreed. He threw off his robes, and they traveled into the city to buy him a new wardrobe, a wardrobe fit for the sea. Now Massal paid for the entire wardrobe, and the former priest was dressed in what was described as a cavalier fashion. Only a few days out from Naples, the ship was set upon by a sally man. Do you recall, during our discussion on the Barbary pirates, the Moroccan port at Sali, the pirate republic at Sali, and what were called the Sali rovers who flew their red flags and terrorized the Mediterranean? These were the Moorish Barbary pirates who attacked victory. 
Their captain, though, resolved not to fall to the pirates. He offered up a brave resistance and fired his thirty great guns against these sally men. The rovers attempted to board Victory, but they were repelled. Then the captain of Victory ordered his men to press their advantage. They boarded the sally rover. James Misson and Signor Caraccioli were the first two across. Now the fighting was fierce, it was hard, but the rovers began to fall back from the deck and fortify their cabins as well as the kitchen. Misson, though, spied a turban-wearing, scimitar-wielding pirate grab a burning wick and run below decks. He knew exactly what the man was up to and sprinted after him. The man was running for the magazine, where he could light the ship afire. He might kill himself and all of his comrades, but he would destroy the French ship as well. But just as he reached the magazine door, Messon caught up with him and ran him through. The ship, the Victory, returned home to Marseille, and Messon took Caraccioli home to meet his parents. And I'm sure we shouldn't read anything into that. We probably actually shouldn't. I want to avoid hard history today, and this story is anything but hard history, but we do need to contextualize this fabrication if there is any truth in it, and there might just be. The Victory was a warship, not a ship of the line, but a 30-gun frigate. She was a naval, coast guard ship, which was no small thing when this story took place. France was at war, the Nine Years' War, in fact which was, honestly, the biggest war Europe had seen since the Thirty Years' War. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the Nine Years' War in the future, but for now, we need to know that France was under siege from all sides, and a coastal warship had her work cut out for her. Victory was called to Rochelle, on the northern coast of France. Now, that's a region that is essentially in the English Channel, in which the fighting was hot between France and England. And right here, the author takes the time to write a couple of essays. Maybe not quite literally essays, but almost. Victory captured a few English ships in the Channel. The Jamaica, the Triumph, and then another English ship that had had so many holes blown in her hull that they couldn't even get her back to France. There is this dissertation about honor and nobility and how we treat our enemies. It reads in part, quote, the captain bid them remember the grandeur of the monarch they served, that they were neither pirates nor privateers, and as brave men they ought to show their enemies an example they would willingly have followed and use their prisoners as they wished to be used. End quote. I agree with that. It's a good sentiment, the golden rule, but after that, the author goes on and on about religion. In particular, they're talking about deism. And I actually kind of like the stuff that he's talking about here. It's similar to the way that Thomas Jefferson and a few other U.S. founders practiced religion. I'm going to refrain from quoting most of that. It would probably insult Catholics and Jews and Lutherans and Calvinists and Anglicans and Muslims, but what it is is an essay on the virtues of deism and its separation from ecclesiastical control. It's very clearly intended to sway the reader, to turn them against all of the faiths I just mentioned, or if it's not actually intended to sway the reader, it's to put them in the mindset of the pirates who are to follow. Because 
in this work, Signor Caraccioli was himself a devout deist, an anti-papist, despite his having been a priest, and he swayed Misson and much of the French crew of victory to his way of seeing things. But there is one bit I want to read. Quote, Signor Caraccioli fell upon government and showed that every man was born free and had as much right to what would support him. The vast difference between man and man, the one wallowing in luxury and the other in the most pinching necessity, was owing only to avarice and ambition. That at first no other than a natural was known. Every father was the head of his family, but, ambition creeping in by degrees, the stronger family set upon and enslaved the weaker, and this additional strength overran a third, by every conquest gathering force to make others, and this was the first foundation of monarchy. Pride increasing with power, man usurped the prerogative of God. End quote. You can hear just a touch of Adam Smith in that, a little bit of Thomas Jefferson, quite a lot of Jacobian theory, and I hear more than a little Karl Marx in that. More than anything, though, I hear anarchist theory. A few days later, this fictional tale intersects with a, an actual historical event. During the Nine Years' War, the English ship Winchelsea drifted ashore on the coast of England. Her whole crew was either dead or missing. The holds were empty. This was a ghost ship. No one knew what had happened to Winchelsea, but everyone assumed a French action in the channel. But according to Captain Charles Johnson, they were right. It was a French action in the channel, and it was actually victory that fell upon Winchelsea. During the battle, victory's captain, lieutenant, and her mates were all killed in a blast of cannon and musket shot. Victory almost surrendered here, but the brave young nobleman, James Misson, picked up his relative's sword, the captain's sword, and he rallied the troops. He led the troops to a decisive victory against the crew of Winchelsea, and they set about to plunder her. Johnson tells us that the only reason he knows about this is because of that elusive French document that fell into my hands, quote-unquote, but that's not exactly trustworthy. So we shouldn't believe this next bit, but I do love it. This what was about to come, wasn't exactly a mutiny. The officers were killed in glorious battle, not overthrown by their underlings, but the right thing to do here would have been to follow the chain of command and return victory to Rochelle to get orders and a new captain. But victory and her crew did not do that. Instead, Signor Caraccioli whispered into Misson's ear, quote, Misson might, with the ship he had underfoot and the brave fellows under command, bid defiance to the power of Europe, enjoy everything he wished, reign sovereign of the southern seas, and lawfully make war on all the world. It would deprive him of that liberty to which he had a right by the laws of nature, that he might in time become as great as Alexander, and by increasing his forces by his captures, he would every day strengthen the justice of his cause, for who has power is always in the right. End quote. 
he would reign sovereign of the southern seas and lawfully make war on all the world. Now that's foreshadowing because who knew, certainly nobody on this ship knew that they were sailing for the southern seas, not yet, but to become as great as Alexander. Misson was swayed by these words. Misson gathered all the men on the deck and he spoke to them. He said, quote, A great number of the crew had resolved with him upon a life of liberty and had done him the honor to create him chief. He designed to force no man. Therefore, if any were averse to the following of his fortune, which he promised should be the same to all, he would set them ashore whence they might return with convenience. He would use the power they gave him for the public good only and hoped, as they had the bravery to assert their liberty, they would stand by him in what should be found expedient for the good of all. He was their friend and companion, and should never exert his power or think himself other than their comrade. That sounds a lot like Karl Marx to me. Most of the crew had been swayed to the ideology of freedom, the deist ideology of Signor Caraccioli, and after this speech they erupted with a great cry of Vive la Capitan. They declared James Misson their new captain. Misson named Caraccioli his second in command, and the crew set about to electing their new officers. Then everyone sat down to make decisions. They elected to sail south first along the coast of Spain, where they could raid Spanish ships, and then along the coast of Africa. Now one of the men asked what flag they should fly. They couldn't very well go on flying the French flag. Another man on the crew suggested a black flag, as it inspired the most terror. But James Masson shot that idea down immediately. Quote, they were no pirates, but men who resolved to assert that liberty which God and nature gave them. End quote couple of things. First, it's very likely due to this particular work of literature, but a man who was resolved to assert that liberty which God gave him by sacking ships on the sea, well, that sounds a lot like a pirate to me. But second, the black flag, the Jolly Roger, that was, when this was story is alleged to have taken place, the black flag was by no means the norm for pirates. Thanks to those Sally Rovers, the red flag was much more common, the color of blood. Most privateers, though, even those privateers that acted illegally, well, they flew a national flag. The years following this story will see many of the pirates flying red standards, but it's not until Henry Avery that we will get the infamous black flag. That story... This entire story, in fact, is, it's not trustworthy, but it is a good story. Herodotus is often called the father of history. He was an ancient Greek writer who wrote the book, or perhaps the collection of smaller works compiled into a book, Historia, or the Histories. He actually gave us the word history from this work, which meant inquiry in ancient Greek. Herodotus is also often called the father of lies because his histories are suspect. He gives us sources, but those sources are often impossible to prove. Sometimes it will be an old man who knows things. They're not trustworthy. 
300 Spartans defending Greece against the might of the Persian Empire, though, a history according to Herodotus, well, that's a very good story. The book Raiders and Rebels by Frank Sherry is... It's a fun, relatively comprehensive overview of the golden age of piracy. You might pick up a copy if you find one. But Sherry dedicated his book to, quote, Daniel Defoe, the greatest liar who ever lived, end quote. Back in the 80s, when Sherry wrote that book, he was of the opinion that Defoe did write a general history. Now, he does make note of the fact that many people thought that might not be the case, and he might have revised that opinion since, I don't know, That means he's calling whoever wrote a general history the greatest liar who ever lived. And whoever that was, whoever wrote a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates, especially this second edition, well, they were indeed a great liar. Almost as great a liar as Herodotus. In a way, this story is the foundation myth for pirates. Without correspondence or journals without their own words, if we were searching for a motivation in the actions of the pirates, we find it here. Freedom and liberty, fighting the authoritarian power structures of organized religion and the state, perhaps their noble goals, certainly their goals that we see mirrored in the American and French revolutions, and later on, of course, gold. Next time we'll continue our story with Captain Masson, and we'll follow him south to Madagascar. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or a review, and everybody who has recommended us to your friends or family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight